Hey guys, this is Billy Hansen, and welcome to the Lynchburg Neighborhood Podcast. This is a podcast about the Lynchburg area, its people, and its history. I found that the more I get to know my neighbors, really get to know their stories, and the more I understand the history and the backstory and how things work here in Lynchburg, the more connected I feel to this place, and the richer my life becomes. So join me in exploring the Lynchburg neighborhood. Today is August 16th, 2020, and it is great to be alive and living in Lynchburg, Virginia. Up here at Mosa Hill, we have been growing flowers and vegetables all summer long. And one of the cool things about our neighborhood is that there are a ton of walkers that pass by our home. Now, there have always been walkers since we moved here, but especially in the last six months during this age of COVID, there have been a lot more walkers, a lot more people home who are trying to get out and move. Now, this makes it really fun because people can pick up these vegetables and flowers as they come by. We can visit with them from a safe distance, and they can see how the garden has grown. Now, a few years back, I wrote an article called On Walking. It was basically making the case for walking as a regular practice. It's not only good for your health, but it's good for your mental clarity, that it helps you think. Now, after I wrote that article, someone came up to me and said that they really enjoyed it and that walking had been huge for them. And that person was Kim Payne, former city manager for the city of Lynchburg. He said that he walks every morning early, and back when he was working for the city, his staff could always tell when he missed his morning walk. And Kim let me know that he actually walked past my house one day a week on one of his routes. So I've joined him for an early morning walk a few times and really enjoyed our conversation. And we finally decided to sit down and record one of those conversations. Take a listen. Okay, so welcome to the Lynchburg neighborhood. Um, I am here with Kim Payne, former city manager for the city of Lynchburg. Kim, so glad that you're here. Good morning. It's nice to be here. I've got all these government questions, like how government works and how power works. But we were just talking before the interview, and you grew up here. I lived here most of the first 10 years of my life. When I was 10, we moved to Lexington. Okay, so tell me, you, you were telling me a story about how the first... Uh, your first family member got here and what they did. Can you tell us that? Well, my um, great-great, I think great-grandfather was a McLaughlin, and he came over from Ireland in the 1830s uh, and settled in Lynchburg to work on the canals, is what the story goes, and then ended up um, moving up and staying in Lynchburg for his, for his entire life. And my paternal grandmother was a McLaughlin who grew up in, in Lynchburg. Mm-hmm. My mother's family also were Moors, and they grew up on Diamond Hill in Lynchburg. And then my father, the Paynes, um, were from Campbell County. And then you grew up here going to Bedford Hills. I went to Bedford Hills for kindergarten. I'm part of second, third, all of third, all of fourth, and part of fifth grade. Uh, and I went to Holy Cross out on Langren Road. Well, actually downtown first yeah. for part of first grade. And then we moved out to, to Langren Road. And then I was there for part of second grade. And you told and you told me you were you used to walk to school right past this house yeah. every day. Now tell tell me about that. Well, I, I, what I was telling you was I, as we were getting ready for this um, interview, we heard the crow outside, mm-hmm. and I always associate a crow with with this property because there's a big <laughs> tree out right on Mimosa uh, here. There used to be a crow that, that I remember in that tree that would say hello yeah. when you walked by. <laughs> He's still here, or his descendants are still here. They're here every single day. So that's funny that that's like a long term yeah. thing. Yeah. Um, what did, what did you, 
what do you remember about growing up in Lynchburg? What do you, what was that like? Um, we had great freedom. I mean, we just, we kind of went wherever we wanted, uh, as kids. Um, you know, walking to school as a kindergartner is something that's unheard of today. Yeah. And, uh, so we could do that. I, and I, when we moved over to, um, uh, to Morrison Drive, I still walked to Bedford Hills. You know, that was, that was great. We pretty much could, I mean, our, the rule was come home when the streetlights come on. <laughs> Other than yeah. that, we were kind of free to roam. Yeah. It was great. When you later, obviously, I guess maybe 40 years later, when you are city manager of Lynchburg, did your experience growing up here sort of influence the city you were trying to make and create? And, and... Yes, to, to a degree, because when I came here to be interviewed, um, one of the things that city council said was they were interested in downtown redevelopment. And I said, well, I remember downtown back when that's where you came to shop. Yeah. Um, I, we moved from Lynchburg in 1963, and that's just about the time that Sears opened up in the plaza, I think. So the, yeah. the first move of things from downtown um, or, you know, out toward the suburbs, which was certainly not unique in Lynchburg. But, um, but I remember that we did all our shopping downtown, and then when the Sears opened, you're kind of like, okay, well, now there's this new thing out there. Yeah. And everybody would go out there. Yeah. So you saw the two bookends of it. You saw it moving downtown retail, moving out, and then you started 2001, served from 01 to 2016, right? right. Mm-hmm. And you saw it come back. I mean, that's the period. Where and that's one of the reasons that I that I wanted to come here, um, mm-hmm. because the my first uh, job in local government was in Spotsylvania County, which is okay. outside of the city of Fredericksburg, um, yeah. and I had seen Spotsylvania just explode uh, with suburban development and strip mall development, um, strip commercial development, and a mall. But the unique character of that region was downtown Fredericksburg and the, and the core city that, that, is in, in, that is Fredericksburg. And it was just a wonderfully, had, had a great sense of place. So leaving that rapid suburban development that was in Spotsylvania to come here to focus on a sense of place was something that I found really attractive. Yeah. Let's get into downtown. I didn't, it's changed so much. I grew up here. I remember it in the 80s and 90s. And then coming back after college, I'm like, this is a different... I came back in 05, 06, and this was a different place. I mean, downtown was just... There was actual life down there. It wasn't vacant buildings. Um, and that's, that's, been, that's been one of the most gratifying things is to talk to somebody who left for a while and came back and goes, what happened? Wow. <laughs> yeah. So how did it happen? One of the goals of this is to understand how something really happened. Like nuts and bolts. Like how did things... How do you get that momentum to make things happen? How did downtown change? Wow. Um, you know, it's funny. When I, when I came here to interview um, for the job, it was the fall of 2000. And um, I came here with my, with my parents. Um, we stayed at the Holiday Inn downtown mm-hmm. on a Friday night. And about 5 o'clock, started walking downtown, and there was nobody down yeah. there. It was just totally empty. Uh, and this is in 2000. Um, and I was really at that point unaware of what had been, what had been going on. So I, I think the, the difference was several things. Um, some very uh, forward-thinking and forceful people, Rachel Flynn, I mm-hmm. give her an enormous amount of credit. She was a polarizing individual, but um, she was able to, um, I think, bring an awareness to the community uh, and actually maybe rediscover something that I think the community always valued downtown. Um, and so she was able to find supporters and allies uh, who realized that there was an opportunity downtown and was actually you could see it was happening in other places as well so she 
I mean, she brought the mayor of Charleston here, and all this was before I got here. And mm-hmm. so there was a downtown master plan that was adopted just about the time I got here in 2001. Some people call it the Sasaki Plan. And that plan, it's amazing how 20 years later that plan has been followed. One of the complaints about plans in communities is they sit on a shelf and they gather dust. Right. The difference here was when that plan was adopted, city council committed a million dollars a year to public investment downtown, investment in the public infrastructure downtown. Um, because the argument was, and I think we've demonstrated that, that, that public invest, private investment would follow public investment. Mm-hmm. So when you do things like improve the Ninth Street Corridor, build a bluff walk, um, you know, though that private, the private property develops. And so that commitment from city council that, that st- had stayed for nearly 20 years, I, and I think it's, I don't know quite where it is right now, but it was a 20-year commitment, and they followed through. Yeah. And so just continually pushing uh, and then being open to opportunities and looking for ways to support the private sector to develop. Mm-hmm. I used to tell people down, downtown has, has enough institutional stuff that has to stay downtown, courthouses, city hall, things like that. And those don't produce any tax revenue at all. Right. And so down, downtown is going to become a place where you have to spend money to support what's down there. But it also needs to generate revenue so that it can support itself and not just become something that the rest of the city is pouring money into to support. So it needed to produce its own revenue by, by adding value to private property, because that's yeah. the way revenues work in local government. Hmm. Um, and so to see the assessed values of property downtown, you know, more than double over 15 years, um, I, think, I think it's worked very well. Yeah. So in hindsight, it's like brilliant, right? Like it's like downtown is booming. It was a great call. Was there pushback in the moment? I think there was some. I, um, I also, in all fairness, have to say there was a demographic change going on in America. You know that, that downtowns were coming back for lots of reasons. Right, it was a bigger trend. Older baby boomers, you know, baby boomers becoming empty nesters. Um, their children and the, and the next generation saying, uh, you know, enough of this mall suburban stuff. Right. We want to refocus on a place. Um, and so that was going on too. And I mean, th- those are the same sort of national forces that built shopping centers and malls out of yeah. downtown. And that, that trend changed. I think there were people who basically would tell you, well, downtown's hopeless, it's dead, it's never coming back. Yeah. Um, and it's, it certainly didn't come back the way it was in the 50s, but it came back as something else. Yeah. Uh, and it, it will continue to evolve as, as something else. There's a, a lot of questioning right now about whether dense urban environments are going to work in the age of COVID. So, you know. I know, so yeah. we'll just continue to evolve. Yeah. So you mentioned one of the, I think one of the most interesting real estate pieces of that, which is the bluff walk, mm-hmm. right? You guys had a lot of different investment, a lot of infrastructure, but this one was interesting in the sense that it, it involved private owners and a lot of cooperation, I think. I mean, I don't know if you guys, I mean, how did that work? Did you use eminent domain? Was it voluntary? Like, how did you guys make that project work? Because it's great now, yeah. but it's tough. Well, there there was a um, public easement through there mm-hmm. along the bluff. And so between uh, using what public access there was and getting easements from private property owners who understood the value of kind of putting two fronts on those buildings. Yeah. Um, so you get a you know you can work it from Commerce Street or Jefferson Street, but you can also work them from the back, from from the Bluff Walk. And I think um, there was a lot of outreach to to property owners. Uh, I think the city historically has done a really good job in 
involving stakeholders in these discussions. And so the property owners, there were some, I think, some enlightened property owners who got it and understood the value there. And it worked out. We didn't get everything we wanted on the bluff walk, but we got probably 90% of what the design was. And I think, again, it's demonstrated that we're, we're getting two fronts on those buildings. We're getting exciting things happening on the bluff walk. Hmm. Um, it's become a unique place for Lynchburg. Is there anything else sort of in the same realm as the bluff walk that you think is a no-brainer and would be a great project, but just for whatever reason wasn't able to get off the ground downtown? Well, I, I'm not sure I'm, uh, that this is something that I would push real hard, but it, but the Sasaki plan included um, a, a walkway along the James River. And, um, and, and as, as people have moved downtown, we, there had been a lot of desire to remove the vegetation along the riverfront so, we can, so people can see the river, because you really can't see it, with it for the trees sometimes. Yeah. I also happen to be a member of the James River Association, and our position is you need to keep riparian buffers on rivers to protect <laughs> water quality. Right. And I'm a fisherman and a floater, so, you know, those, yeah. so there's, a, there's a, a tension there. Sure. Um, but the Sasaki plan in, included putting this walkway along along the riverfront along along the river bank basically and the challenge is that land is owned by the railroad um and they're not gonna they're not gonna give up that um the other issue down in riverfront park was the the norfolk southern railroad track you know there's two tracks that are csx and then there's a track that's close to the one that goes right by the depot um that's norfolk southern and there was always a desire to eliminate that track to give more land for the riverfront park and it would require the cooperation of both railroads uh, and it would be very very expensive i think at one point the railroad said fine you can move the track totally your cost mm. and i think it was well over a million dollars to move that track and yeah. it just we just couldn't get to the point to justify that with, yeah. with the other things that were on the list to do downtown yeah you know you go to other cities where they've They've reclaimed their riverfronts in many yeah. places. Yeah, they've some they, of some of they've moved highways away from riverfronts and things like that. And they're and they're amazing. And they've and you you've got boats and you've just got. I mean, we've got that on the Amherst side, but it it's a long way from this side to the other Amherst. Okay, side. Okay, so that brings up that brings up really the thing that I think is very doable and should be done, and that is connecting to the Amherst side. Okay, how um, do we do that? There is a vision to hang a pedestrian bridge under the um, the Carter Glass Bridge, mm-hmm. the Expressway Bridge. There's you go up to the parkway and see a bridge under a pedestrian bridge under a vehicular bridge. You can go to Richmond and see the same sort of thing, and I think it can be done here. So to, to get that connection from Percival's Island over to Rivers Edge Park, and then you could also I think improve the pedestrian friendliness of the John Lynch Bridge, yeah. and you could actually create a loop there where you could where where people could could walk around. Um, that is a that is something I would rather spend a million dollars or whatever there to make that connection than to try to move a railroad track or put something on the front. Because they're actually the views of Lynchburg from the Amherst side are incredible. It's a great park. Yeah, it's a wonderful park. I'll, when I'm working, especially with COVID, instead of stopping at a coffee shop, I'll, if I'm driving around, I'll park there and mm-hmm. answer email. I mean, it's a beautiful spot. Yeah. And yeah. I, I think you're right, some connectivity there. Because it's not very good right now. The John Lynch Bridge is take your life in your hands yeah, trying I mean, to walk across there. Yeah, well, even getting up to it and down off it is, yeah. is a challenge. But I think that could be a, a, an incredible pedestrian loop. Yeah. Um, and it would also give you access to, well, to the lower end of the trail. And, of course, you know, the, tra- the, the envision for the trail is that that trail will go all the way to Appomattox or into Campbell County. Yeah. You know, I've talked with some um, former city council members that were around when they 
got the island. Wow, um, yeah. And in retrospect, it's brilliant. You know, it took a lot of work, it, it, but now it's such a great public use. Yeah. Um, yeah. But you look at old aerials, and it's just train after train after train. This train yard, which you can't even picture now. Well, if you get off the track, the, if you get off the asphalt trail, you can actually go back in the woods and see the remnants of some of that. Yeah, yeah it's, it's really kind of fascinating to see. But the average that. guest to Lynchburg that rides their bike through there would never realize that it would have been right. shoulder to shoulder trains through there. Yeah. Um, so you're always, I'm always curious, like what's the next thing that it's hard to picture now, but 20 years from now it'll be. It's it's funny we're probably due because Lynchburg I think has been blessed over the years with with incredible vision like that um, from I mean you and I had talked previously about the Peddler Reservoir and yes. the water system here and that was just that's amazing um, the uh, Percival's Isle I, I think the downtown redevelopment I mean that's something that that has really um, been been good um, so yeah kind of what is the next big thing I don't know so tell us about the Peddler we did talk about that I was always surprised when I heard some parts of the city are getting water from the james some are getting it from the peddler and if there's a line break it's all coming from the james you know you're always like what does that even mean how, what is the peddler reservoir and how do we get water here well the peddler is uh is it's a reservoir up in amherst county so it's about 25 miles away as a crow flies from the waterworks uh in the city and um it was uh acquired i think in the in the 1920s uh, from what i understand and the idea was to get a clean source of drinking water. You know, the James wasn't exactly a clean source of drinking water. Back before the 50s, when people started putting wastewater treatment plants in, um, people just used the, the James River as a, as a dumping ground, uh, any river, really, um, just for, for that. So um, I think there were questions about water quality, and clearly the, uh, the Peddler Reservoir up in the mountains there, surrounded by national forest, um, was a wonderful thing. So, um, you know, our, our water... Most of the time flows by gravity from the Peddler Reservoir to the top of College Hill where the water treatment plant is, which yeah. is pretty amazing. That is amazing. And then we also have another water plant out, um, you know, just on the western end of Lynchburg. Yeah. Because water has become such a big issue for so many localities. I mean, there, it seems like that's a tremendous amount of foresight to secure yeah. a mountain yeah. reservoir. Yeah. All right. So you talked about downtown and the riverfront and the train tracks and it seems to me that as a leader there's things you expect and then there's things that happen that you don't expect that you've just got to deal with tell me about the train derailment that was that was you were there right (laughs) yeah wow um it was funny we had we were actually um we were in city hall um we we had just had a town gown meeting um one of our periodic town gown meetings and we were talking about our new app app i think uh, a web-based uh, emergency operations center where you could you know you didn't have to go out to candler's mountain to the to the eoc to to manage an emergency and so as we were leaving i, I happened to look out the window and there was just this big dark cloud of smoke you know looking to the north uh, to the james river out the window i was like oh my god the riverfront's on fire mm. <laughs> and 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 so I'm not sure exactly what happened then, but but I headed, which is just absolutely the wrong thing to do, but I headed down to the riverfront. Yeah. So I started going down 9th Street um, thinking the depot grill is gone. I don't know what's happened here, but, you know, the, the, the depot grill has got to be gone. Um, there's got to be other damage down there. I don't know what's going on. And uh, as I got closer, my phone started going off. Um, you know, I'm, I was hearing from news agencies all over the place. You know, what's this about the... 
I mean, even Al Jazeera got my my cell cell number somehow. I don't. I'm going what? <laughs> and uh, and you know, it was over really in about a half an hour. It burned out, but it was just incredibly frightening. As I was walking down, people were walking up Ninth Street, yeah. evacuating, and I was seeing people from deep workers at the Depot Grill who I knew because my kids had worked there. Yeah. And I'm thinking, is is everybody okay? And they went, Yeah, everybody's fine. We're we're moving out. And so there would have been no building damage, no human damage, um, just this big mess down there. Um, our, our, our police department and fire department responded incredibly well. The state responded. Um, but like I said, within about a half an hour or so, the fire was out. I had most of city council down there. I didn't realize that until I stopped and turned around and went, oh, <laughs> everybody kind of came down to yeah. see what was going on. And then the rest of it, it just kind of became a, a cleanup issue and then an issue of wow, how do we, how do we prevent this? Fortunately, the fire department had been trained in, in dealing exactly with that. They knew what really? was, they knew what was in those tank cars. They, you know, the, the tank cars are marked yeah. and these guys knew what was in them um, mm. because, because they had had that hazardous training. Yeah. Um, and then we realized how many of those cars are going through the city every day. So how does that rank among your unexpected challenges you faced in your 15 years? Um, I would say it's in the, top five or six mm-hmm. um i was th- my the first one was 9-11 yeah that's um, right that's right when you started uh, yeah, yeah right right yeah um i was actually over visiting with the president of virginia university of lynchburg i was i, I had a point with him i was sitting in the lobby waiting for him and he came out and said you need to see this and he mm-hmm. took me into this television and i'm going oh i need to go back to city hall because nobody knew what was going on then we just yeah. knew that this thing had happened so that that one, um, I would say the derecho. Yeah. Um, I would say the death of Clarence Beard. Mm. Um, the recession of two thousand and nine, yeah. the Great Recession. Um, those those are some of them that stand out for me. Um, and I joke with with Bonnie Severchek, the current city manager, that she's had more in four years than I had in fifteen. Yeah. <laughs> no kidding, right? So, like, yeah. Yeah, yeah. But she, she was in the process of retiring, and then it's. COVID, you know, so much of 2020. Civil unrest, yeah. tornadoes, uh, flooding, uh, you know, she's... Yeah, and that dam, the dam over... The dam, yeah. Yeah. It, like, yeah. yeah. I mean, she's had a lot in a short She period. has had an incredible amount of stuff. Right, do you... Are you able to be an ear for her to bounce things off? I mean, you're the only other person that's kind of been in that role. Do you... Bonnie and I... Well, yeah, I, I, I told her when I left, I said, I'm a phone call away. Yeah. Um, you, you know, if ever I can, you know, just listen, I, I will. And if... And I also told her, if you ever feel like I'm too close and getting in your stuff tell me to back off because this is your deal now and um yeah she she and i get together we see each other at rotary for one thing but we also we'll get together two or three four times a year and just have lunch and and just share you know um i i i am a coach uh in uh, in the international city management association so uh, that's one of the things i do as well in my retirement yeah (laughs) so you're retired now you do some consulting, some coaching. You're still teaching a, a government class. Mm-hmm. Do you ever miss the day-to-day grind, problem-solving of being a city manager? Um, I guess you're getting a little bit of it I'm back right it, now. I'm getting, it ba- I'm getting it right now, so if I did miss it, uh, I'm getting cured of that. Yeah. Um, I, I, I didn't think I did um, because I was staying so busy doing other things, and it's kind of fun to go into another community and kind of say and give your opinion on what's going on without really having any responsibility to 
do anything about it other than express your opinion and maybe mm-hmm. make some suggestions. I, you know, I'm in my second week in the town of Amherst right now, and it's been it's been it's been fun to to get back into that. But I'm also it's also reinforcing. You know, I retired for a reason. Yeah. I, I didn't want to work five days a week. I wanted to do other things. A number of people have said to me, boy, I bet you're glad you're not city manager during all this COVID and everything else. And I thought, well, you know, no, sometimes it's hard to sit on the sidelines if you think you can add add some value. Yeah. But then I tell myself, no, <laughs> you had your issues. They got their issues, you know, and, and obviously you can't do this forever. So in your role as sort of looking back, you've got a little more perspective now, right? Like you were in it, but mm-hmm. now you've got your coaching, you're looking at other localities, you're teaching. Are there any trends or, or headwinds that you see that, that Lynchburg in particular is going to have to face or deal with over the next five, ten years? Well, I think there, there historically have been challenges to older core cities, um, and particularly in Virginia because of city-county separation. Uh, yeah. um, you know, cities become places where people in need of services come uh, to settle. And so you get issues of higher poverty, um, more demand for services and things like that, um, that the city ends up having a responsibility for, even though the city's providing these services almost on a regional basis. Um, uh, and when city has things like the hospital, which, which is an incredible regional asset, but it doesn't pay taxes. It doesn't directly pay taxes, real estate yeah. taxes. So. You know, there, there's the, that dynamic. I think many cities are stressed, fiscally stressed, because of that. The way that dynamic works out. So that's that's a long-term issue. I mean, that's where downtown revitalization has helped counter mm-hmm. some of that. Um, on the other hand, I am I'm deeply disturbed by the polarization in our society that, mm. that I think is getting worse. Um, I think it's making it more difficult for for local governing bodies to govern appropriately when when from my perception they sometimes seem to have more um a commitment to some uh, ideology of their of a party be it the right or the left i don't doesn't really matter to me and and they have they seem to sometimes have a harder time focusing on this community and what we can do to make this community a better place for everybody um you know saying is you know water and sewer lines and roads don't have a political (laughs) affiliation yeah but lots of, I mean, and, and there, there, some healthy tension about pr- setting priorities um, is valuable, and that's why there's seven folks on the governing body, at least here. In some places, it's five or three or nine. But I think at some point, they've got to put this allegiance to some group outside of, you know, the city aside, and say we need to work to make the city work. Um, and I. Lynchburg is still functioning well. In some communities, you see it worse. Um, but in my time, at you know, 35 years now or whatever, it used to be that nobody ran on a party label. They were yeah. all independents. And you might, you know, you know who's Republican, who's a Democrat, who's an independent, who's liberal, who's conservative. I always said you got to be fiscally conservative to be in local government because we don't have all the resources we need. Right. We have to set priorities. But when when that loyalty to a party becomes more important than than a, than working to to make the community work, um, that's that's something I'm concerned about, and I don't see that we're and it's being driven. I mean, it starts at the national level, and we've see, we're seeing more partisanship at the state level, and I'm afraid it's headed for the local localities as well. That's my concern. 
Now it it is frustrating, I think, to watch and and to see our city council meetings, and sometimes there's this partisanship that it's like, I don't know, this local stuff is not that, it's not a partisan issue. It doesn't seem to me, from my perspective, and it is kind of, you wish there was just seven citizens that didn't have affiliations and allegiances like that. I don't know. Well, that's the way it used to be. I mean, I I think Lynchburg historically, you know, had, had folks who were relatively nonpartisan. They had different opinions, but they were relatively nonpartisan. But the world has changed. You know, yeah. Lynchburg didn't used to have women on city council. They didn't used to have African-Americans on city council. Yeah. So all of that is, is a good thing, and, and the more diversity on council and the sure. more diversity yeah. of ideas. But, again, my, my concern is if it becomes too partisan. And, and what, what has happened is this some, I think some folks are starting to see maybe service on, on a in, at a, in a local government as a stepping stone to moving up into state service or national service. Right. And if they're, if they're, that can maybe make them think I've got to, I've got to take this position at the local level because I'm going to be criticized at the next level. Yeah. If I, if I raise taxes, um, I mean, if I have to raise taxes to build a new high school, I'm going to be cr- criticized as a, as a, you know, as a tax raiser. Well, no, we needed a high school. <laughs> yeah. We needed to pay for it. Yeah. Um, so how do you how do you justify those sort of things? So would it be right to say that our form of government in the city of Lynchburg is a check on how far that partisan power can, can go? The way that's a manager council. I mean, is that well, a, put a lid on it? I don't. I, w- I would say no. Okay. Um, I mean, uh, under under that the the council manager form of government the theory anyway, is that the realm of politics is for the governing body. And, and you know, politics isn't a bad word. Politics, sure. politics, in my opinion, is having a discussion about applying limited resources to the things you want to do to make your community better. Um, and, and the decisions you have to make and the compromises you have to make. And that's, that's politics with a little p, and I, I'm fine with that. Yeah. Um, that's the way the system works. That's the way democracy works. When it gets so partisan that it, that it, freezes up and can't act that's that's unfortunate and that hasn't happened at the local level yet i think it's clearly happened at the national level and whether it'll happen at the state level or not who knows um but no the so under the council manager form of government the governing body is responsible for setting policy um setting priorities determining determining the direction the community is going and those are political things and and then the manager's responsibility is to implement Right. The direction and the manager, our code of ethics says we we are not political. We have to know how to operate in a political environment, but we are not partisan in any way, and we don't take sides, and we don't advocate for a party or or, or anything like that. Yeah, from your sort of unique view as a city manager, the other person, you know, sitting in the city council meeting, interacting with city council, what is it? What are the qualities and characteristics of a uh, a good member of city council, somebody that can do a good job in that role. I think a passion for the community to make the community better for mm-hmm. everybody. I think is really important, uh, and I think I think I would say most of them. I'd say all of them that I'm aware of. You know, that's where they start. They want to make the community better. They want to offer themselves as in service to the mm-hmm. to the citizens of the community uh, because they think they're bringing something that can help make it better, and that's a great thing. In order to be an effective council member, I think they, they need to um, they need to do their homework. They need to listen to the different perspectives of 
of the community about an issue, they need to listen to the staff, what the staff has to say. They need to challenge the staff to give them appropriate information. Um, but when the staff gives them information, they need to read it. <laughs> yeah. And they need to hold the staff accountable to, to giving them good information, presenting alternatives, presenting consequences and things like that so that they can make a decision. I think they've also then got to be willing to engage among themselves and listen to each other's perspectives and then in the end be willing to maybe compromise a little to get to something that's better or, or is, is, is good for everybody. And they also need to understand that losing a vote is not the end of the world. You know, there's, there's many opportunities. So you don't have to always win and you need to be willing to compromise and you mm -hmm. need to keep the, the good of the community at, at hand. And so the best council members or governing body members that I've worked for did their homework Held the, held the staff accountable, set high standards, hmm. had a passion for the community, uh, and were willing to work together, you know, in that group of seven to, to move the community forward. Yeah, that's good. In, in your role as a teacher, you teach people in local government. Most, usually... most of them are in, yeah, in local government. Mm -hmm. Can you think of, a, of an example of a time that you saw a city council member in your term here in Lynchburg who displayed leadership to a point that you like, you could teach that. This would be an example you'd want to bring into the classroom. Like, this is an example of some leadership I, I saw that you want to see more of, that you want to commend. Mm -hmm. Well, one of the challenges of, the, of our form of local government is when you have seven people, they have to act as a body. And so it can be difficult for any one of those to kind of be a leader. That person needs to be a coalition builder because they need three more votes at least. Yeah. Um, and I've, I've, I had a a board member in Spotsylvania who I, I would say, he's always got four votes in his pocket. I mean, he, he's, he's, or if he doesn't, he's going to figure out how to get four votes. And he was a master at doing that um, on, a, on an issue he was, that he thought was important. He would always find a way to get those four votes. Um, and I would just sit there and start counting, you know, and go, okay, it's at four now. <laughs> yeah. Now we're going to move. Um, and so council members who can do that have been effective. But, but when I think about... Um, and so there's council members who will bring forward initiatives and then try to convince the other council members that it's something we need to address. And so I think we've, we've seen people who have done that. Uh, and I think a lot of leadership has been exhibited when these crises occur. Mm. You know, I've talked about the, the, what the mayor's role is in, in this. In this. And, and mayors in Lynchburg and the council manager former government are different than mayors in big cities where those mayors have executive authority and yeah. have much more power. Um, than the mayor in Lynchburg, who is, is clearly the chief elected official and it's the kind of the figurehead for the community and then, and then is responsible for running the meetings, but has no extraordinary power beyond that, is, is one of those seven. But we've been fortunate, I think, in all those crises that I named, 9-11, uh, the derecho, uh, the train derailment, um, and then even into the civil unrest, uh, the, um, the, the covid We've seen a series of mayors who've been willing to step forward and represent the community and speak, you know, from Carl Hutchison to Joan Foster, Mike Gillette, Trené Tweedy, and now Mary Jane Dolan, who, who said, I'm willing to take that mantle on to represent this community to try to be the, a unifying force to speak about the things we need to do to respond to this. Yeah. So we've been very fortunate, I think, to have that. Mm, yeah, that idea that they don't shy away from that moment, that they sort of step in and I'm here. That's the role of a mayor. Um, it's an informal role. It's not a formal role. Um, and, and most of the mayors, you know, I think they maybe to all of them, they, they generally have the other six with them, yeah. as many of the six that can make it to the event. 
because they really the council speaks as a body and the, and the mayor doesn't have the authority to say okay take this resource that's here and now apply it over here only council can do that yeah you know i've lived next to two different council members while we've been in lynchburg and it seems to me people don't realize what a thankless job that it can be and how much time <laughs> if you do your homework like you say all the different things that you've got to read, study, be at. And we can't sure go people... to the, you can't go to the grocery store. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Anonymously. Only at like midnight. Yeah. Right? Like, yeah. Or with a mask. Now with a well, mask. Maybe on, with a you mask you can get away with it. But, but yeah. you're going to get, you know, yeah. a, a ton of different grocery questions. store, church. I got the maddest my wife ever got was when somebody gave me holy hell on Easter Sunday <laughs> <laughs> at church. <laughs> she, oh, she was like, wait a minute. <laughs> but it seems like it's a huge commitment. And I mean, they don't pay but peanuts for i mean it it it's a service it's definitely a service i mean there there is some compensation but it's not it's not i mean i think it's fair um because but they're not in it for the money they're in it for the service right yeah okay so the two most visible displays of power would be city council and city manager i think from the public at large if there's going to be someone in the comments section that they want to uh, commend or throw arrows at it's going to be the city manager or city council because that's the people we see that's the people we hear from and that's where most people think that's where all the power in the city resides or at least the most visible parts so my question is where is there power in the city that's not visible that we can't see but it does have a big impact on how decisions are made and what gets done and wh where are those pockets of power that wouldn't be so obvious I think they're frankly in every citizen's pocket in their phone. Frankly, really? uh, I had a I had a case one time in um, Spotsylvania. It was a, I don't know if it's a land use case or something, but I had one of my board members said to me, he said, um, "Gosh, this is a really important case. I'm really catching hell for it. I, but I've got ten phone calls." And I went, "You got ten phone calls? That's nothing." <laughs> he said, "No, for most ca cases, I get no or one phone call. So I got ten this time." Really. Um, and so that was a learning point for me, um, the power of even a few phone calls. People, when, when people speak up in a, in, a, in a community, particularly in a smaller community, Lynchburg is not a large community. Yeah. When people speak up, they get heard. Yeah. Um, I mean, the world might not change the way they want it to change immediately, but they will get heard. And uh, there have been times, and I can't point to a specific trace it out, but where something has happened, at a, at a, and this happened more often in Spotsylvania, Something would happen, and it's, the, the board would go in a direction that, I, that surprised me. And I would realize one phone call did that mm. to one elected official. And that elected official went with it because he or she thought it was a good idea and was able to convince the rest of the, of the governing body. So the power of even one phone call mm. it can be really important. So I think the citizens have, have the power if they'll exercise it, if they'll speak up, if they'll be engaged. And if they'll be patient and fair, you know, they're not going to get their way. If they want to get their way, they can run for council and then they'll only be one of seven and they can try to get their way that way. But they need to be, and this citizens of this community love this community, which is a great thing. So the, the power is there. Hmm. I think there is some, um, there's some power in people who step up and serve as representatives on the planning commission, the IDA, you know, the board of zoning appeals. There's lots of boards and commissions people can serve on and have influence that way. Yeah. I'm, there's probably a distinction to be made between power and influence. Sure. At some point, they probably overlap. I used to say I didn't, I don't, I don't, I didn't think that I had a lot of power. I had a lot of influence, though. Mm. 
And so I could have an influence on decisions that were made, even though I might not make the decision. I certainly influenced it. Maybe it's influence. Maybe it's maybe it's actually informal leadership. Um, mm-hmm. I, every department head in the city, I, I would encourage. I had encouraged to be a leader. Every worker in the city could be a leader. You know, mm-hmm. you see something that needs to be changed, speak up and let's talk about it. Mm-hmm. And a lot of a lot of staff in the city do it, and a lot of citizens do that. Yeah. So I think it's a dispersed it's a dispersed system that when everybody's using it the right way, I think it can work very well. But if we're at each other's throats all the time, it's not going to work so well. So we got to listen and respect other people's opinions and then work towards a common, a common good. I talk about it in my very first class. I talk about what's the common good. Yeah. How, do, how can we work towards the common good? Yeah. So there's a story I've heard that I have not been able to verify. But there's a story that, that goes that there was a group of seven individuals. During a period in history, I'm going to assume they meant 40s, 50s, 60s. This group of seven made every major decision for the city of Lynchburg, and they were not in elected office. They were a private group that would... You're picturing this smoke-filled room, right? Well, I'm, um, I'm picturing some private business leaders, probably, who were... May have, you know... Yeah. That may be the way the story Where goes. roads went, where... Who got what, and there was this highly powerful group. But they would say no more, and I've asked hundreds of people, especially old-timers, I've asked people in their 80s and 90s, who who would know? And no one has ever verified it. But does that idea strike you as possible? No. No, I don't think so. For one thing, I don't... I I mean, there there have clearly been influential people in this city um, that... You the, and I can't remember all their names, but the the president of First Colony Life, right. um, the president of Randolph Macon Women's College, um, their call might have a little more weight than an average. Absolutely, call. Sure. absolutely. I mean, well, you know, there there were people. I tried to return every phone call. There was people if they called, I would, certain people I would try to return their phone call faster because I knew they weren't they weren't messing around. There was an issue or a reason. So there's there's always been a group I think of influential business people, and it may have been stronger in the past. But the thought that, that seven of them would get together with some frequency and make decisions that then got implemented by the city council, I find that really implausible. Yeah. Um, I'm not saying it couldn't happen. I'm saying I, I. I don't. It just doesn't sound real plausible. Yeah. Because frankly, council members once they're elected have the ability to do what they want to do. Yeah. Doesn't the idea of it, though, make you kind of curious? Everybody loves a conspiracy. Everybody loves a conspiracy. And, and I used to tell people, look, just because you don't understand what's going on doesn't mean it's a conspiracy. Yeah. And just because this happened, I said, don't, don't overestimate, you know, just human stupidity for doing things. It's right. not necessarily a conspiracy. It just turned out that way. And, I'm, you know, for, for good or bad, it, conspiracies, I think, are very hard to hold together. Yeah, I, I agree. I agree. So... You're getting feedback from your staff. You're getting feedback from the general public. How important do you think it is for a city council member or a person in a position of leadership to have a group of trusted advisors that they can, you know, say, run this by? Say, hey, like someone you trust to to tell you straight. Like, how important is that? It's really important. It's incredibly important. You, 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 You can't, you get blinded to your own ego and, and, you know, Boy, I know what's right. I'm. I've got 
you know, I've got these degrees, I got elected, you know. And so, yeah, I, I mean, I got the right answer here. Well, you need someone to look you in the eye and say, you're all wet. You know? <laughs> or, 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 well, that's interesting, but tell me more. Right. You know? And then you start to talk about it and go, whoa, wait a minute. <laughs> Maybe it's not so smart. Yeah. Um, no, I think it's, it's really important. And I, had, I, had, I was fortunate to have deputies and department heads who, and it's one of the things I laid down when I got here. Listen, if I'm going off and doing something stupid, grab me by the scruff of the neck and tell me, well, you might want to think about this. You might want to just back down a little bit. Because, you know, when, you, when you're a confident leader, sometimes you charge into the wrong thing mm-hmm. in the wrong way. And, and it, people who can remind you that humility is important are, are incredibly uh, valuable. Yeah. Was there any decision that you were, or moment you were heavily involved in where you felt like you really had to lean and you were really torn on? during your tenure here that you really had to lean on your council, your group of advisors. And you were just the one that you lost the most sleep over. I would say the death of Clarence Beard was one of those moments. Mm. Um, we, um, it happened. It was a tragedy. Um, we had leadership in the African-American community that came to us, the mayor and myself and said, we've got to do something. And I'm thinking, what? I mean, I don't, I, I can't fix this. Yeah. Um, I can't make unmake this terrible thing that happened. Um, and so the more we talked and engaged and, and, and we decided, well, we need to, we need to continue talking. Yeah. We, and, and that's kind of when I, I felt when I had a challenge, my approach was to talk to as many people as I can and get their input and get their insight and get their suggestions. And that, and then we're all trying to figure this out together. And that's kind of how the dialogue on race and racism mm-hmm. was born from the mayor and I and, and leaders in the African-American community saying, we just gotta, we've got to do something, and, the, and we didn't know what that something was. And the more we talked, it kind of evolved into, well, we need to talk about what the something should be. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the, the talk became the goal. Yeah. Having a conversation became the goal. And I, that's, that, again, was always my approach. If I don't know what to do, well, then it's probably better not to do anything right now and to pause, reflect, gather input, gather perspective, and then, and then come to some path forward yeah. together. Yeah, it seems like at the local level, having relationships with the people you serve, where they know you, trust you, and that you guys can have a conversation, seems as, oh, as important as it can That's really important, yeah, yeah, really important. Um, when I came here, I, I started making a list of people I needed to just meet, you know, yeah. and then I, I would go and meet this person, and I would say, no, who else do I need to meet? Who else do I need yeah. to, to talk to? And who do I need to get to know? And, and she, that's one way you find out who's influential. Um, and it's maybe a little unfair because you don't get other people, but you have to be open to finding people who want to, you know, participate in the, in the process. Yeah. So do you think as, as good as downtown redevelopment has been, and I'm all for it. I serve on the DLA. Like I'm, I love downtown. One of the criticisms seems to be that that's the most public investment that we make, the one we hear about, you mm-hmm. know, roundabouts and bluff walks. One of the criticisms seems to be that our resources being spread out among the city in an equal fashion, in an equitable fashion. Do you, I imagine that's a constant tension. Did you feel it when you were? Yeah, um, but my argument was down, downtown is the, is the um, identity of the community. Yeah. I mean, when you talk about what is Lynchburg, 
yeah, there's the colleges, there's the natural beauty, but nobody says, well, Lynchburg is the mall or Lynchburg is this particular neighborhood. Lynchburg is that built environment, that skyline, mm-hmm. um, you know, that, that, that you identify as, as Lynchburg and it can't deteriorate. It can't decay. It can't sit there and fall apart. It needs to be productive. Mm. Um, and so, yeah, there was some tension, but it, roads, roads have been built in other parts of the city. Yeah. <laughs> Schools have been built in other parts of the city. I mean, the biggest public investment this city's ever made was Heritage High School. So there was probably more tension about some of the areas that were annexed in 1976 and some of the expectations people had about mm. water, sewer, sidewalks, streetlights, that those expectations never were met. Often they were reported to us as promises that were never kept. But the more we researched them, they, they were certainly clearly expectations that were never met yeah. rather than promises that were not kept. But... Um, so, yeah, there was a little bit of tension there, but I think the reason uh, downtown can't, because there's so much institutional stuff that is going to stay downtown, it can't suck resources from the rest of the city. And it will unless it's generating its own source of revenue. Yeah. So back downtown, back to the James River, as you come across the bridge. Which bridge? John Lynch Bridge. Okay. That's my, my kids call that the aha entrance into the city. As you come, come, across. You come around the curve and you see that skyline, you go, whoa, ah. <laughs> That's right. It is a great, every time mm-hmm. I pull around, it is a great view. But one of the things you see is water shooting up in the air. <laughs> and if you're not from here, you think, is there a broken pipe? Is everything okay? Are they, are they doing all right? Tell us about that fountain and how it got done, and what does that tell us about how local politics work? Well, that's an interesting story in local politics, too. Um, so the idea for the fountain, my understanding is, went all the way back to the bicentennial of the country, like 17, 1976, mm-hmm. that there was an idea. And back then, everybody, well, let's do something to celebrate the bicentennial. And the fountain was an idea that never got off the ground. And I think it might have come back a little bit around... 1986, which I think was the 150th anniversary of the city, but nothing ever happened. Um, and what it took was one person, Bruton Langley. Um, mm-hmm. Bruton decided that he wanted to make a donation to the city, so this early 2000s, um, of the fountain in honor of his wife. Mm-hmm. And um, so he um, engaged Ray Booth, former public works director in the city. Um, Ray, I think, was involved in the design and, and, and the selling of it. And they came to city council and said, we've got this great idea. We want to put a fountain, you know, down here in the middle of the river on the, on the old bridge abutment, mm. Ninth Street Bridge abutment. And um, council was receptive to the idea. And so we want to be, it wants to be the tallest fountain east of the Mississippi. Um, that was the, the aspiration. And described it as a single stream of water, you know, going up really high. <laughs> council... Was receptive, so this is one one person, and he and people got and, and he was able to point to a history of this is something this community's wanted to do and never never got done. And I'm willing to put forth private funds to make to make this happen. You know, there's a pump station right there. That there's a city water intake down there, so the, there there was stuff in place to make to make the plumbing work. The funny story is that people are like, well, what's it going to look like? Yeah. <laughs> and so I. Um, asked the fire department, I said, how, how high can you shoot a stream of water into the air? They went, pretty high. <laughs> so we had a public um, display out at the fire station out on Lakeside Drive. I said, everybody's going to come out here, we're going to shoot a stream of water into the air, and you can see what the fountain's going to look like. And so they 
got one of the pump, one of the pumpers all primed up, and they shot a stream of water, you know, <laughs> hundred feet in the air or whatever. Yeah. And I was like, that's what it's going to look like. <laughs> and and the council's like, do it. Yeah. So council voted to do it. Um, people criticize the cost. It, the, the city does pay the electricity for the pump. It's a couple thousand bucks a year, things yeah. like that. But they did it. And as soon as the as soon as the fountain started working, people said. Is that all there is? I went, look, we showed you what it was going to be. Yeah. <laughs> you bought it, so it's, it's there. Um, I happen to love it. I, yeah. I, I mean, you go down there on a certain afternoon when the wind's blowing right and the sun's setting, it's the most incredible, the, the, the rainbow wall of, yeah. of, that you see um, is just amazing. And I think, I think most people, when they drive downtown, it catches their eye. And when it's not on, we used to get calls. Why isn't the fountain running? Yeah. And they turn it off during high water events. And there's been talk ever since it went up about putting lights on it, about putting a sculpture around it, about doing something to quote unquote enhance it. Yeah. And none of that's ever gotten any real traction. Hmm. Well, I love it too. I think it's so interesting that you guys can spend millions and millions of dollars on infrastructure. And then this tiny, relatively tiny little change costs you a couple thousand dollars a year, really changes the skyline like I'm, I'm really fascinated by these little changes you can make that are small, but they're beautiful, and they, they could really change the way you see a city. I used to have a discussion with the planners in, in the community development department. You know, planners like to plan stuff, and they like to design stuff, and they like to see it happen the way they design it. Yeah. And I used to say, guys, downtown needs to be funky. It right. needs to be. You need to walk around a corner and go, where did that come from? And, and uh, you know, so having these, indi- like you said, individual small things, whether it's a mural or a fountain or a pocket park or a, a building that someone painted purple, I, I, I don't care, you know. If we tried to design that, we would look like some of these planned urban development communities that are, I mean, I wish them the best, but they're, they're different than downtowns. And if you're a downtown person, you think that maybe that's a little boring or a little too cookie cutter. Right. Not to take anything away from from those things because those are valuable too. But I, I want my downtown to be kind of strange, right? And and you walk around, and you go, "Whoa, that's really neat! Look what <laughs> yeah. they did there! Look at that that building! Look doesn't look like that building, and it's not as tall as that building, and it's got a different front, and it feels different. It's right. got a different thing inside, and that's what downtowns are. And the fountain is part of that, and yeah. the, the the skate park is part of that. You know, the pocket parks are part of that. Yeah. Um, the murals, I think that's that's cool. That's what downtowns should be. Yeah, no, I agree. And it's been fun to watch how it how it's changed. And I appreciate you coming today and, and telling us about your experience with downtown and with the city in general. And um, well, it's been it's been a fun now almost 20 years that yeah. I've been in this community back in this community. And I I love this community and I'm going to stay here as long as I can. And yeah. uh, uh, I'd like to see it continue to develop. Yeah, well, we're, we're glad you're here. So thanks for being here today. And you're welcome. It's been fun. Big thank you to Kim for sitting down with me. I really appreciate his thoughtful approach to leadership and his focus on the common good. And I think the Lynchburg neighborhood has really benefited from his leadership. See you next time.